rewarded behaviour will be repeated. So put yourself in a situation where there are some rewards and celebrations along the way so that you don't feel like it's a constant grind. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Hey, Coffee Potters. Today, we're talking all things wealth, money and financial advice. And our guest is Catherine Robson. Now, Catherine is the founder of Affinity Private Advisors. She is an incredibly experienced financial advisor. She won all sorts of industry awards from uh, Money Management's Financial Planner of the Year, the Banking Council's Outstanding Wealth Advisor, you name it, she's been a recipient of it. What I love about Catherine is the accessibility of the way that she talks about money, you know, her interest in how we form good habits and how we can create small changes that can make a fundamental difference to the outcome that we achieve. Uh, Also, we're going to touch on investing and uh, running businesses. Catherine's run her own wealth management practice for numerous years now, and she's also on the board of Scale. Now, Scale is an organization that invests in, collects investors to invest in female-led businesses. She's got some really interesting insights in how she evaluates investments and how different that process is to the traditional evaluation of public companies. It's a really great chat. If you're someone that tends to shy away from money or wealth-related conversations, this is one to lean into. Um, But for all of you out there, this is a a really great refresher for whatever point you're coming to this conversation on. Here is Catherine. Catherine Robson, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. It's a pleasure. I've really been looking forward to sitting down with you. So I'm interested. uh, You know, you run your own organisation. You're involved as an investor in startups. uh, You've got a passion around uh, wealth management, financial advice. How, How early did this arrive in your life? Did you wake up one day and you just love numbers and you were sort of always that kid that everyone was looking at going, how do you manage your pocket money so well? Like, Where, where did it start? Well, there's a, there's a story that my dad tells. And, and, and in fact, I mean, I probably wanted to follow in my father's footsteps. So he was involved in finance um, and he was always very keen for us to be financially literate, all three of us as kids. Um, and so he used to run a program where they would give us uh, pocket money. And if you had any leftover at the end of the quarter, they would double it. So to incentivize savings. So you know, I don't really remember this, but he reckons that I used to go to my best friend at the end of the quarter and say to her, give me all the money you've got. I'm going to put it in my bank account, show my dad that this is what my balance is and he's going to double what's there. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think, uh, you know, in terms of thinking creatively about, you know, how you can um, master your own financial destiny, that certainly was imprinted early on. And so how did that passion turn into a career path? Well, it's interesting. So it was a sort of circuitous route because I was a typical girl. I loved economics at high school, but I was afraid. I had very few regrets in life, but one of them was not having the courage to study economics at university. So I was afraid of the numbers. And and one of 
the inner dialogues for me had always been I'm bad at maths, um, that, you know, sort of typical gender lens that many women have. And so I went to study law instead, um, which was a great discipline. I certainly don't regret studying law and I did um, an arts degree majoring in Asian studies, but I sort of got to the end of my law degree, I wanted to do honours and there was the opportunity to choose my honours thesis and I ended up doing my honours thesis on prospectus regulation and corporate governance. And it actually was the finance aspects of that that was really most fascinating than the legal aspects, to be honest. And so when I was looking for a job as a graduate, I was lucky enough to get a job at Macquarie. And then that sort of uh, ended up becoming a career that I didn't even know what it was going to be. I joined their private bank, but it was soon clear that what I really loved was that opportunity to to interact with clients in a very personal way, but also have that problem-solving capability. Mm. So how do you take the the problems that they want solved and apply, you know, both numerical analysis but, you know, also regulatory understanding to, to design a solution? So you said, you know, there, there was sort of this, I'm, I'm not very good at math and, and that resistance to fully embracing the numbers. Was there a, a conscious point where that tipped in a different direction or did it naturally kind of occur with the career path you embarked on? Yeah, I think it just naturally started to change over time. So particularly because when you you see the beauty and the the ability to have clarity with numbers. You know, I, I love a good spreadsheet, love the opportunity to be able to articulate things in a numerical way. And certainly having had kids, you know, I'm very conscious now of both my own self-talk, but certainly with the kids talking about, you know, the beauty in numbers and the, the, the beauty of being able to express yourself in multiple different ways. Mm. I wanted to touch on uh, sort of Australia's relationship with money. And I guess at a macro level first, before we delve into some of the individual habits. How would you categorise our relationship with money if you had to? We are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. But when you look at surveys around our relationship with money, but also our relationships with each other, money is often the source of conflict. Um, And Relationships Australia, the last time they did a survey of intimate relationships in Australia, stress about money was the number one cause of relationship breakdown, which is crazy when you think about, you know, Australia being in the sort of top 10 countries of the world in terms of uh, resource. Um, and so, you know, my sense is it's not how much money we have as Australians, it's the level of control we feel like we exert and how pivotal our feeling of mastery and control of our own destiny, which is so linked to our financial capability. Uh, that shapes the way we feel about ourselves, but also shapes our positivity or not about the future. So why do you think we feel like we're not in control? What's that down to? Uh, I think it's because we lack um, financial literacy and capability. So we haven't been terribly good at educating people about money. I think it's something that we feel very uncomfortable talking about socially, um, more so for women. But, you know, it's one of those... um, in some ways, admirable qualities that, you know, you don't want to show off and talk about how much you earn. But I think what we substitute for having meaningful conversations about money is uh, look at the um, goods and services that people consume and assume that success is linked with that. So if people are going on expensive holidays, if they've got an expensive car, if they've got a glamorous house, if they wear beautiful clothes, we look at that and say that must be the sign of success. Um, so if we acquire all of those things, maybe we'll have the, you know, the sort of um, financial 
outcomes that we want. And in fact, that's the absolute worst, um, you know, direction to go in. And there's a fabulous book called The Millionaire Next Door, Thomas Stanley, and he talks about this expression, big hat, no cattle. And so it's, you know, you, you know, in Texas, you know, when you pe- see people striding around with the big hat, you know, often they're the people who are, are wanting to make an impression, but there's no substance behind them. And that's what you often find with people uh, who are very, good with money, astute with money, are very discreet, very understated. You'd never really know because they don't feel the need to show off about what they've got. Um, But the flip side of that is that they're often not sharing their insights and wisdom with others because they feel like they should be discreet. I feel like that's one of the really challenging parts of this topic. I know you're a huge fan of uh, behavioural finance. Talk to us about how we're wired as human beings and how that serves or doesn't serve us when it comes to the topic of money. Well, so there's probably three main areas that I think are really helpful to have insight into. The first is that we're social creatures and that we, we want to compare favourably to the people closest to us. So we're much more concerned about what our sister-in-law or our brother-in-law has or does than we are about someone on TV. And so I think, you know, being aware that that can either be helpful or not, you know, the fact that my next-door neighbour has that sort of car, you know, when I have the longing to have that car, maybe I should unpack that, you know, is it something that I really need or is it because I've got that sort of strong desire to fit in? I think the the, the next thing is the fact that self-control is actually exhausting and, oh. and, and saving is actually the consistent exercising of self-control. And, you know, literally there's been studies done in terms of the glucose that your brain consumes when you're trying to control, you know, whether it's dieting or, uh, you know, other programs. And so if you're constantly on a savings program that relies on self-control, it's much, much harder than if you can bind your future self because self-control is actually easy in the future. So, you know, let's just say we were planning to meet today, Holly, and um, seven days ago, you know, we said, well, well, you know, what would we like to have as a snack after the podcast to celebrate um, our achievements? Probably both of us would say, well, you know, we're healthy people and we'd like to have a nice salad afterwards. But if we didn't lock that order in and we went downstairs to the cafe and there were some fantastic brownies sitting down there, in the moment we're much more likely to go for something that um, is available and tempting. And so if we can do the same sort of thing with money is bind our future self so that you're not actually having to exercise any conscious thought around it, you're much more likely to stay with the program. So is that part of sort of how you how you automate your systems, but also how you fix your goals? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and so there's, you know, there's some simple ways to put that automation in place. So, you know, make a commitment that, you know, the day you get paid, you have a fixed amount that's going to go out to make extra home loan repayments or to go into a savings account or go into an investment program. Um, but the other way is, you know, increasingly fintech um, is coming Um, to the fore to embrace some of these behavioural finance um, insights to help um, make that easy. So say, for example, First Step, which is one of um, the companies that I've had a bit to do with, it's a micro-investing platform. So you can effectively have it as an app on your phone, link it to your bank account and credit card, and every time you make a transaction that's less than a whole dollar, 
that extra increment, so you buy a coffee for four fifty, the extra fifty cents goes gets swept across and buys a, a very tiny piece of an investment portfolio for you. And you never notice the money that, that's been swept away. You haven't had to exercise a decision point around that 50 cents, should I invest it or not? It just happens. And so the more we can couple the insight around behavioural finance with something that automates it and takes it out of the conscious part of the brain, the more likely we are to find ourselves in a situation that, that we look over our shoulder and think, oh, goodness, there's much more that's accumulated there than I realised. So then, the, you know, the third one is the, the idea of loss aversion. So mm-hmm. we're mu- fascinated by this. Yeah, we're much more sensitive to the prospect of loss than we are by the realisation of gain. In fact, studies I've seen say we're twice as sensitive. Twice as sensitive. Yeah. So, you know, one of um, Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman's key insights was exactly around this point. And so, you know, that that we often think about that in terms of, say, what type of investments we choose. So often we'll avoid investments that have some sort of outcome variability. So shares, for example, you know, we, we're not exactly sure what we're going to get in return when we make that investment, but actually around savings as well. So, so you, there's this great study um, with capuchin monkeys where, you know, if you give a monkey one apple, monkey's happy. If you give the monkey two apples, um, monkey's happy. If you give a monkey two apples and take one away, the monkey goes ballistic. (laughs) And often that's how we feel about things that we feel are taken away from us. So tax payments, for example, is one of those things that gets a lot of people into trouble, particularly, say, self-employed professionals. So very intelligent people can find themselves quarter after quarter struggling to pay their tax bill because when they've been paid their partnership distribution, they feel like that's their two apples. Mentally, it's theirs to do what they want with. And then the fact that the tax office wants to come and take a slice of one of those apples, they feel um, the, the... the sensitivity to loss. And so, you know, my advice is if you're running your own business or if you're in the situation where you have things you need to provision for, make sure that they go away at source. So let's say you're running your own business, you're making a profit, put away 30% um, into a separate bank account that in your mind, that's not your money. That's the tax officer's money and you never feel like it's yours. And the way in which you manage your cash flow will be much more effective just by mentally compartmentalising those two things and treating them differently. I feel like that's such helpful advice to understand our natural predispositions, even our primitive self to to a degree, and how to work with that so we can actually um, get out of our own way to some degree. Well, and I think, you know, again, it's very much like dieting, you know, It's, there's no point someone, you know, pointing their finger at you and saying you should eat less or you should exercise more. You have to make it easy and you actually have to make it enjoyable. So I think that's the other thing in terms of embracing behavioural finance is rewarded behaviour will be repeated. Mm-hmm. So put yourself in a situation where there are some rewards and celebrations along the way so that you don't feel like it's a constant grind because that's the other thing, particularly with women, there's this feeling of every time I spend any money, I feel bad. And that's a terrible situation to be in, particularly if you work really hard. And so, you know, no one likes to talk about budgeting, but, you know, one of the beautiful things about a budget is if you've set yourself a goal and you've outperformed that goal, it gives you the opportunity to feel proud and feel a sense of accomplishment. Mm. Um, And so that's, you know, if you set up a budget well, and again, if you embrace, you know, one of the um, fintech tools that like Pocketsmith or Pocketbook or any of those programs that 
make it easy to keep track of um, how you're spending your money, the more you put yourself in a situation where it becomes um, a virtuous circle rather than, you know, something that you feel anxious about and you feel ashamed about and that you don't want to talk to, you know, your friends about. One of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is is change. And one of the things that comes up continually, doesn't matter what context we're talking about it, whether we're changing culture, whether we're changing systems, and I'm thinking about in this context, is we, we sometimes over-focus um, or build up to massive, massive decision points. So much so sometimes that we feel paralysed and we actually never move our way through it. Um, and yet we over, uh, we under-focus on the day-to-day small decision points and the habit changes that actually produce a different result. So kind of our focus, time, effort, energy goes sort of to the wrong place. How does that apply in the, the finance conversation? Yeah, so this is absolutely a segue to my favourite topic on finance, which is compounding. Okay. And, um, you know, I think it is the most powerful force um, when it comes to managing your own financial situation, either for good or for evil. And so, you know, I think exactly what you're saying is that famous Tony Robbins quote, you overestimate what you can achieve in a year and you underestimate what you can achieve in 10. And finance, when you apply the compound overlay to that is exactly that case. And in my experience, having been an advisor for over 20 years, when I look at the clients who have been most successful financially, it's not been the big things that have made the difference, you know, finding Facebook and investing in it at an early stage. It's been regularly repeating small behaviours. So, you know, it sounds so obvious, but it's actually hard to do in an environment where, you know, money has dematerialised to a certain extent, spending less than you earn consistently. It's actually quite hard, you know, because often, you know, you've got credit cards that will have limits of well more than, you know, what your monthly salary is. So, you know, it's easy to think that you're doing well, but you're actually accumulating debt somewhere else. So, you know, those small actions are probably more important almost than where you invest the money, you know, building up that discipline from the earliest possible stage. Um, So putting aside money somewhere, even if you're in an environment where you're not earning much, just a little bit really helps. You know, I think if you're in a relationship, you know, thinking about if you've got two incomes, can you put one of those incomes away completely? Because then it gives you the freedom to have choices down the road. Not only will you have, you know, a more substantial balance sheet, but if one of you in um, a partnership wants to start your own business or, you know, take a a period of um, time where you want to invest in your skill development through education or take some time away for the family, you know you can survive on one income. Mm. Um, So, you know, some of those relatively small things can have, you know, a big impact. I know you've spent um, some time now as a financial advisor, and which involves obviously asking a lot of questions of the individual to help create a plan for them um, to get what, what they want to hopefully achieve out with their money. What do you think is the most powerful question people can ask themselves on this topic? Well, actually, I think it's about probing what their own values are and, and the, the sort of why. Why is this important? Why is money important? I think this goes back to your insight um, before we started recording about this sort of silent shame around money because I think we feel like money in itself is, you know, evil, that sort of old-fashioned saying, you know, money is the root of all evil. If you can change your mindset to, like, why is money important? What good could I do in the world 
if I was financially strong? You know, that I think is the most important question to start with because if you genuinely believe that being financially independent not only helps you but possibly helps other people, you're much more likely, I think, to, to be committed to it and to feel that it's important and something to prioritise. So that that's, I think, you know, again, particularly for women, women often prioritise the needs of others before themselves. So, you know, they'll spend their income on family members or filling the gaps, you know, for others. But I really like that idea of, you know, fit your own oxygen mask first. If you're financially strong, you'll be in a much better position to, to help others, you know, rather than, um, you know, being vulnerable uh, but not only that, you know, if you're a role model, that really helps people around you um, follow your lead. I love that analogy of sort of you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help anyone else. Uh, that's a really good way of reframing uh, this whole conversation, I think. Yeah, because I think it's less about wanting to be rich and more about wanting to be strong. Now, I wanted to touch on your own uh, journey. You've run your own business uh, for a long time now, Affinity Private, and then you've moved into this whole space of investing in startups too. I'm interested... How did that whole new world um, with scale and other investments that you're doing, how did that change the way that you thought about investing or the way that you could deploy your money? Yeah, so I think, you know, I was in the fortunate position that I went to work in financial markets from a very early age and so had had the experience of investing in public companies, had had the opportunity to invest in property. Um, and I think running my own business was really empowering, um, but there was lots of stuff I didn't do very well. And so, you know, being involved in startups for me has been the opportunity to almost have a, a do-over, if you like, to look at other businesses in a way that I can hopefully contribute some of my own experience, hopefully help founders avoid some of the mistakes that I made, but also get an insight into what the future looks like. Because, you know, the beauty of startups is that here are people who, you know, uh, in most instances, staking everything they have on an idea about what the future will be. And, you know, it's amazing the range of creative innovations that, you know, people are building businesses around. And so, you know, it, it's, it's not uh, for me as much about, you know, trying to generate outsized returns, but a part of wanting to, to, you know, give back to founders, because one of the things that was fabulous for me when I started my business was just the number of people who want to help you and who are generous with their time and insights. And so it's, it's a framework to be able to do that. But it's also the ability to, to funnel capital into what is important for us as an economy, but particularly for us as a community, I think, for women to have access to capital, to be part of what will be a changing and evolving economy is really important and I like being part of that. And to contextualise, scale is exactly that, right? It's it's predominantly female um, investors and it's female-led businesses. Correct. So I'm an angel investor with scale and I also sit on the board and that's exactly right. So we're... Um, an organisation that looks to bring women and men together so that we can be a lightning rod for capital, if you like, um, into gender diverse teams that are running good businesses. So, you know, it's a little bit different from CEO, who, you know, I, I think is a in a fabulous organisation, um, it is about taking equity stakes in businesses and about aligning the interests of the founders and the investors to try and grow value. And it addresses one of the, these big challenges um, around how much capital 
goes to female-led businesses and gender-diverse teams, uh, and it does it really effectively. Which is still alarmingly low in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, it's about, well, you know, it depends on what measure you use, but, you know, less than 5%. So, you know, it's in terms of the networking effect that happens, um, you know, even in a country like Australia where, you know, we've got a good education system, you know, we've got, you know, good anti-discrimination protections, and yet, you know, in the environment that's most fluid and open and changing most rapidly, we're seeing women being marginalised from that. And so having access to capital won't solve all the issues, but certainly is a key part of it. What's being an investor taught you? What have you learned about? It's sort of even the evaluation process of ideas and the due diligence to decide whether you're going to back a particular founder or business. I think it's um, really helped in terms of challenging me to be mentally flexible. So a lot of the standard investing rules that you look at when you're assessing a public company is whether it's a good or bad investment are completely turned on its head when you look at a startup. Revenue and profit is what you're looking for when you're investing in a public company. So, you know, experienced management, track record, and, you know, the highest possible profit. When you're looking at a startup, often there's this race that's going on. So, you know, a race to grow to a large enough scale to be meaningful, to exploit an idea. So often the the window for an idea to make sense or to be in an environment where you can grab as much of the potential competitive landscape as possible is quite short. So growing quickly is often more important than generating revenue or, or getting to profitability. So, you know, I think, again, one of the things that in, in life has been really helpful for me is this whole idea of having a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. So what do you look for when you're evaluating a startup? Very much around the founders. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a very difficult road to be a, a startup founder so so resilience uh, is is absolutely key and and I think also you know the clarity around what problem you're solving and why you're the right person to solve it you know they're, they're the two things that I think are really important I was thinking you were saying earlier how sort of some of Australia's money habits keep you awake at night when you look to the future and you think about you know where the economy's going and how fintech's going to change things how demographic shifts are going to change things what's the thing that gives you huge cause for optimism yeah so I think you know the, the, the ability for us to use tools like YouTube and for us to be able to act Access the, the the wealth of human achievement in such easy ways. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, I was talking to my daughter about last night is Eddie Wu, who is a yeah. New South Wales uh, maths teacher, um, who has this fabulous channel uh, WooTube, which is basically you know recording of his maths lessons. Has a, now has a TV program which is called Teenage Boss, and it's Eddie sitting with kids going through the family finances and giving them an understanding of how, you know, basic personal finance works. And that sort of stuff makes me so excited because it's engaging, it's pitched at the right age group. You know, when you're young, you have the, you know, by far and away the best opportunity to change the course of your own life, but particularly because compounding um, is so effective if you have it in place for a long time. And things like Khan Academy and um, all of these abilities to 
reach out and access things that were locked away and hidden and privileged. You know, when I first started as an advisor working in a private bank for a big financial institution, it was very much about, oh, this secret knowledge. And I think, you know, what's happened is this democratisation that, that actually a lot of that is out there and you can access it. And that makes me really excited. For you, I mean, your career in business, your career in finance, has there been a core bit of advice you were given by a parent or mentor that's really played a significant role in how you've navigated your own career? It's a realisation I've come to in the last few years and there's sort of two parts to it that came from two different people but I, I, I think they go together. Um, the first is to treat yourself like a million dollar racehorse. So you know you think about well if I had an you know if I had a really successful racehorse that could win a million dollar prize in a group one race I would treat it so well. I would let it rest, I would feed it well, I would make sure if it was injured it didn't overtrain and then you think well actually I can generate a million dollars of income over the course of my life or much more than a million dollars of income. And yet sometimes, you know, as a business owner, as an executive, you know, as a parent, I don't treat myself that well. And so I think, you know, that, that was a really good piece of advice in terms of thinking about how you manage yourself. But the other part of that is, you know, the way you talk to yourself affects the, the sort of person you are. And the way you talk to yourself should be the same way as you would talk to the person you love most. So that sort of self-talk, you know, I would never, you know, say to my daughter, you're hopeless, you're useless, you're no good, you, you know, you're so lazy, why, you know, why did you make a mistake, you're an idiot. You know, you say stuff like that to yourself and I think if you put the mirror up to it and say, would I say that to someone else? No. Well, don't say it to yourself. Talk to yourself in the same way as you would to the people you most love. And then not only will you be happier and stronger in yourself, but actually you're probably more likely to, to be useful to the people around you because you're coming from a place of calm and contentment and, you know, peace. I love that you brought up self-talk too because I, I think it's something in Australia we don't talk about. I, I didn't hear about this idea till I went to the United States and big big encourages a self-talk and, you know, controlling your narrative and talking to yourself positively when you get up in the morning. And um, I feel like also bringing a consciousness to the, mm. like, it blows my mind, the stuff we're not even aware that we're saying to ourselves and even trying to develop that greater awareness of how did I talk to myself after I went into that job interview? How did I talk to myself before I walked into the board meeting to pitch an idea or whatever the circumstance might be, particularly when we're feeling nervous or vulnerable, are we speaking into ourselves in a way that encourages or a way that actually is probably destructive? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, you know, Australians being able to loosen up and being, you know, a, a little bit more receptive to some ideas that sometimes can be outside our comfort zone can actually, you know, not everything will suit everybody, but, you know, see if it resonates with you, try it and keep going with it if it does. Now, Catherine, I'm so grateful for everything that you've shared. I feel like particularly the behavioural finance um, catches, those three ideas will be really powerful for everyone that's been listening. I'd love to get a call to action you'd like to leave our audience with. What would you like to encourage them to go and do after they've listened to this podcast with you? What I would encourage is to make one small change. So, you know, again, I think what we often do is try and bite off something huge, you know, I, I, I'm going to find that, you know, a hugely returning investment or, uh, you know, I'm going to save 90% of what I earn. Do one small thing, put an extra $25 a week into your superannuation, for example. You know, it, it takes one call to your payroll and you won't even notice it. Or set yourself up with something like a micro-investing platform like First Step 
and put it in place and then see where you are in six months. So do one small, easy thing that then you can celebrate that success and build on your success from there. And and it's funny, I mean, I, for myself, I often think about, you know, our capabilities as, as being like an you know elastic band and you often think, oh, I'll never be able to do that. And then and then you do and it just expands your capability and, and it becomes the new normal. So the more you can just put in place, you know, one little step, um, the better. I think also, and we talked about this um, in terms of, you know, women's finance particularly, um, and, you know, men probably do a better job of feeling comfortable talking about, you know, their finances and talking about stock tips or property tips, which women are, in my experience, less likely to do. You know, think about having, you know, as a, a play on a theme of a book club, have an investing club put a small amount of money together with a group of friends and use it as the opportunity to build up your confidence um, in investing. You know, probably uh, in equity markets would make sense because it gives you the opportunity to get some diversification and do it in, you know, smaller amounts. But they're the sort of things that um, start, start with something small and then leverage that success. Awesome. I hope we see investing clubs popping up all over all over the nation, all around the world, because I think that's a great idea and it's a, a practical way. I've often reflected on the fact that, you know, when I get together with my group of friends or when I'm, I'm talking to people, we often... We don't, we don't get into the finance side of things. We don't talk about I'm going in for a promotion conversation and here's the raise I'm pitching for. We don't talk about, hey, I've been thinking about uh, investing. Where do you think I should be looking? Or I'm looking at investment. How should I be evaluating it? Do you know anyone I should talk to? So that whole shift. In fact, Noni Hazelhurst said this line to a group of young people um, I was talking to, uh, she was talking to a couple of years ago that I was in, where she said, if we want to change the world, we need to empower women and we need to heal the broken hearts of men. It was really interesting, both the men and women talking about both sides of that, the guys saying, yeah, we're trying to open up our our friends to talk more about their feelings and the difficulty they're going through and be more open about the struggle and, and challenges and the successes. And the girls going, yeah, we really need to get more comfortable talking about careers and finance and what we want to achieve in the world and being able to feel comfortable being ambitious. So I feel that really resonates with what you were saying. Yeah, and so that stepping into leadership and so, you know, taking some of that or sharing some of that burden with men in terms of men not feeling like they have to have all the answers yeah. when it comes to money all the time and to, you know, have a partner in life or, or you know, peer group where you feel like, you know, leadership is being demonstrated, um, you know, across the group. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. I feel like you've been unbelievably pragmatic with the advice that you've had to offer and I'm sure it's going to resonate with so many people out there listening and I'm excited to hear about the behavioural changes that are going to ripple through as a consequence of this podcast. So thank you for your time. Oh, well, I've absolutely loved it and I love the work that you're doing. So thanks so much for uh, having um, me on the show. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.